With all the plenty in this nation, it may be hard to digest the concept of food deserts in our urban areas. That's the lack of easy access to basic, fresh, and nutritious foods. Urban farms are one way to deal with these food justice issues. The overall problem is brought to our attention by the folks at Sauce Magazine, and it's the subject of this month's Soundbite segment. I spoke in studio yesterday with Sauce Managing Editor Catherine Claney and with Gibran Jones. He's with Holistic Organic Sustainable Co-op, or HOSCO, a nonprofit focused on urban agriculture and food justice in St. Louis. Melissa Vaderod is the Farm and Food Director for Missouri Coalition for the Environment. She joined us by phone. I began by asking Catherine about the need her magazine felt to look at food justice issues. Absolutely. You know, we love covering the restaurant scene in St. Louis and dining trends and chefs, but we recognize that not everyone in St. Louis has access to those places or even access to quality food to cook at home. It's important for us to shine a light on organizations in our community um, and people who are working to change that and change access to food in our area and highlight some of those those issues and, and tell people how they can get involved. Gibran, how serious an issue is it? It's a very serious issue. I think um, it's very important for people to become aware of where their food is coming from, understanding the um, unequitable distribution of food, and try to figure out how we can solve that problem together locally. And Melissa, what is the Coalition for the Environment's involvement in projects like this? Missouri Coalition for the Environment's Food and Farm Program uh, works to impact our local food system and uh, support local food and sustainable agriculture across the entire state of Missouri. MCE, we are the uh, backbone organization for the St. Louis Food Policy Coalition, a coalition of stakeholders in the St. Louis region that are working to promote a thriving local food system for the greater St. Louis area. Sounds like you probably have your work cut out for you. It's fun. I love it. It is so (laughs) exciting. Uh, We've been doing this for Three years, the Food Policy Coalition uh, formalized in September of 2015, so I guess officially two and a half. And uh, the the coalition keeps growing, and we keep uh, finding projects that organizations are excited about to work on together that they maybe wouldn't have had the opportunity to do otherwise. Gibran, how much fun is it for you? It's very fun. I enjoy working with people, um, um, and I also enjoy working with plants and growing food. And I just really enjoy when you show someone, especially children, how to produce food, how to grow food, and then take them into the kitchen and show them how to actually prepare the food as well. And you get to see the smiles on their faces. And it's really important and very fun. Catherine, how do you define uh urban farming and food justice. Sure. Well, so urban farming and Gibran, you obviously have a much more in-depth knowledge on this, so feel free to jump in. Urban farming is it's growing crops in a city using vacant lots, rooftop, rooftops, spaces that you wouldn't necessarily expect. You don't need 50 acres out in the country to, to start a farm. You can start a farm in your backyard in the city. Um, it's more than just gardening. It's And, and particularly Hosco uses uh, urban farming as an opportunity. Hosco is Gibran's organization. organization um, uses urban farming as an opportunity to create jobs and entrepreneurship and really give people not only access to food and growing their own food, but access to income and and sort of building their own business. So Mm. there's and there's a lot of organizations in St. Louis that do that. How does Hosco work, Gibran? So Hosco is a 501c3. It was started May 20th, 2010, and it actually serves as a training organization for incubating food cooperatives. So individuals come, they train with the non-for-profit, 
and the non-for-profit assist them in setting up their own businesses, all focused around food. So we try to make sure that people understand the importance of food and the importance of the local food system and how do we redevelop and, re- and, and redesign that local food system so that it's more, uh, more access for, for food for people. Is that largely because they, we, we keep referring to food deserts? And a food desert, and your definition is what? So my definition as a food desert kind of, kind of changed throughout the years. But essentially the definition of a food desert is any area where there is low access to food, but then also the individuals don't necessarily have the capital to buy the food. They, they, so if the, the USDA definition used to be um, you have to be about a mile away from where the food location is. But you can be right next door to a Schnucks, and if your family can't afford to eat the food and buy the food in Schnucks, mm-hmm. then typically your house itself can be a food desert. We actually uh, did a piece on food deserts in November of last year, and I think our writer um, found that there are nine St. Louis City food deserts and 22 St. Louis County uh, census tracts that qualify as food deserts, and that's that definition um, of one mile from a grocery store, and that primarily affects uh, low-income people of color in the St. Louis area. And this is where the term food justice comes into play. This is part of where the term food justice comes into play, making sure that everyone has access to, to food across the board and, and quality food. I'd like to jump in for a second Do. and share that uh, in my work uh, talking with people about these issues, um, I let people know that uh, the term food desert is actually not um, well-received by people who live there oftentimes. That is, mm-hmm. that is true. And that is so I, I refer to these areas um, that have low-access needs. We just talk about them as... Uh, you know, communities with, with limited food access. Um, and these are often, as, as mentioned already, communities where there's lower income. And unfortunately, in St. Louis, it's a racial equity issue because we see more people of color um, living in these types of communities. You know, I have the same problem, uh, Melissa, with the term food security. It kind of dresses up a, a much more severe problem, which is hunger. Mm-hmm. And that's something that people are dealing with here in this community. Food insecurity leads to hunger, and but you know, hunger's the root. So what do we? What do we? I mean, what what can we do to address both of these things, prevent people to getting to that state of hunger? Yeah, one one of one of the main main things that we try to do is teach people how to produce food themselves. There's a number of vacant lots in the city where individuals can can hopefully acquire the the vacant lots. But even in, as simple as growing in your backyard, when I was growing up. We had a backyard, and we grew quite a bit of food. There was a vacant lot next to us. We grew quite a bit of food, and we, we wound up sharing that food with individuals from, the, from our local community. So really, we, we need to shift the thinking away from typically let's go to the store to buy our fruits and vegetables mm-hmm. that are imported and that are coming 1,500, 2,000 miles to us and learning how to produce the food locally so it becomes more available. Well, frequently going to the store to get food, uh, food, fruit and vegetables, the store is a corner store. There are no f- fruits and vegetables. That is correct. Most of the corner stores sell potato chips right. and uh, other other products that are unhealthy. So really it's, it's a educa- it, it boils down to an education issue where we need to focus on educating people on the benefits of eating fruits and vegetables, how to produce those fruits and vegetables themselves, and not necessarily 
eating just to fill your stomach up, but eating so that you're actually getting the nutrition that you need. How well is that going? How well are people responding to that? So for, for us, things are, are going pretty well. We, we work with a number of different organizations here. We try to get into St. Louis Public Schools and communicate with the students, but then also branch out and communicate with the families as well. And we've been, it's been very well received. We have a lot of nutritional education classes that we do. We do culinary classes and really, really diving in and trying to work with the students helps the the overall family start to change their diets because whatever the children ask for, that's kind of what the parents are going to buy. And if they start asking for more fruits and vegetables, which we've seen in some of the schools that, that we have gone into, then you start to notice that the diets of the the family starts to change as well. Oh, and there's and there's real, I think, evidence to support that if a kid grows it, if a kid grows kale, mm-hmm. the kid is so much more likely to eat kale. If a kid is involved in cooking the meal, the kid is so much more likely to to try that food rather than just having it put on a plate in front of them and mm-hmm. say, oh, that's weird and green and Correct. I don't like that. Correct. Melissa, what kind of education programs do you have? Well, our role at MCE, given that we're a statewide environmental advocacy organization, we do education on... Uh, you know, generally what's going on in the food system and then what are those policy barriers and what are opportunities for citizens to get involved in making policy change. Uh, In 2016, we went out and surveyed 850 residents in the city of St. Louis to find out what their interests were when it relates to urban agriculture. What types of activities would they like or not like to see in the city? And we used that information to inform a uh, drafting of a of a bill for the city of St. Louis, which did pass last summer, um, increasing the number of backyard chickens allowed. So that that's very exciting. And we also used the results of that survey to work with the building commissioner to issue a policy memorandum allowing for the on-site sales of eggs, honey, and produce from community gardens, home gardens, and urban farms. So the politicians are being receptive to the need. Yeah, yeah. It took a little while. Um, We did work on a bill in uh, 2016 in the spring that didn't pass, which led us to doing this community engagement. But it it was evident that when they could see what residents said they wanted, then they were able to, you know, feel confident in passing passing an ordinance to address those needs. Gibran, what sort of policy initiatives would you like to see? I would like to see the... Actually, I would, I'd like to see the, the issue around SNAP um, and how we deal with SNAP. Food, food stamps, food, food stamps, yeah, yeah. Food, food stamps. And, you know, there's, there's a – again, going back to the cost of food, going back to the ability to grow food locally, we can decrease the cost of our, our living by producing food locally. So I'd like to see there, there be legislator, legislature – that has passed that deals with creating environments where we can actually produce food. So maybe an agricultural zone, and we start working with zoning, uh, the zoning, changing some of the zoning so that people can grow food in specific areas. Kind of like what Melissa was stating in terms of with the chickens and being able to have backyard chickens. I think we need to actually identify areas within the city where we can grow. I mean, there's even just a, just a simple thing. There's a lot of 
parks that are not necessarily being kept up. Mm-hmm. Imagine if we took those parks and we allowed people in the community to actually start producing food on, on those, those park lands and then actually assisting in helping to upkeep it as well. They do reserve areas and parks uh, for prairie preservation. <laughs> why, why not food? Why not food? Exactly. Yeah. Well, what sort of food are you growing or, and encouraging people to grow? I understand fruits and vegetables, but specifically? Specifically, um, things like collard greens, um, we, beans, a um, lot, of, lot of protein. There's a lot of individuals that are looking to change their diets to move away from from eating meat. So we want to make sure if they move away from that, that they're still getting the proteins that they actually need. And mm-hmm. so I would say a lot of the beans, proteins, a lot of the, the staple items, the items that can, can last last long and be shelf-stable shelf and not necessarily only just, um, you know, uh, greens and things like that. But we see a lot of – there's a high demand for greens, leafy greens. That's a huge demand right now. When you, when you distribute this uh, through the co-op, are people paying for it or are they just uh, contributing work in order to uh, to receive these goods? That's a very interesting uh, interesting question. So they do a little bit of both. So the individuals that, that come work within the, the co-op, they can volunteer a certain amount of hours and those hours then qualify them to actually receive – receive that amount of food based off of the amount of hours that they work. But then we also sell directly to individuals in the public. So we are in the process now of creating a local grocery store that will allow individuals. We've been selling mostly through farmers markets and other other entities, mm-hmm. but we're, we're in the process now of creating through a USDA grant a local grocery store that will allow members to come and shop. And based off of the amount of hours that they work, then they are able to receive a percentage off produce or depending on how many hours they work, the produce basically based off of how much how many hours they work. So say for example you work, you know, five hours, ten hours, then you receive that dollar amount at ten dollars per per at ten dollars an hour. Melissa, there's a, something that we haven't spoken about here that I know from programs we've done here that is very important. That is the, the health component to all of this. By giving the people who need it uh, healthy and nutritious foods, it keeps them healthier, and that has a payoff uh, for the rest of their lives. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, urban agriculture is definitely a way to increase access to nutritious food that can, can be life-changing, and so that's one of the main things that we want to help people do uh, to increase access because, as we mentioned earlier, earlier, income can be a barrier to affording those nutritious foods. Um, so urban agriculture is a good way to uh, obtain healthy food without having to worry about that price. And earn also additional income. Mm-hmm. So if you yes. grow food, you produce food, and then that provides food for your family, you can also sell some of that food, which also helps to generate uh, additional income, and which which would be, I guess, the layman's term for, in the street would be like a side hustle, right? <laughs> so you'd have your you'd have your regular job, right? And then if you want to earn additional income, then you have these little side hustles, which would be producing food and then selling that food, whether it be at a farmers market or to a local grocery store. Catherine, have or, you added or on site or on site? Right, right. on site. You know? We need we need poli- that's we need policy changes for that on site, right? Well, we we currently can okay. thankfully to that new policy memo from last year, and so this this growing season we're trying to get the word out uh, to make sure people know 
um, that, that that is something they can do. And uh, MCE is happy to come out and talk with people about about how to set up that stand and be in compliance. Um, but, it, yeah, it's an exciting opportunity to, you know, you might not make a whole lot of money off of, off of your garden, but like Jabron said, it could be a side hustle. Catherine, have you... Um, Oh, go ahead, Melissa. I'm sorry. I just want—I just wanted to touch on um, while urban agriculture is critical, we still have this food justice issue about our brick and mortar stores. But I can hold off if now. No, 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 go ahead. You know, I it's, think it's, it's a, a multifaceted conversation it, today. It, I think. Well, it's also a big part of the problem right. because it's the it's the access issue. But go ahead. Yeah, yeah. I just wanted to just touch on um, you know there are certain parts of North City or North County where there aren't a whole lot of grocery stores available, um, which is an issue when we want to work with grocery store chains in the region to bring grocery stores back. In the meantime, we have these great opportunities of, of urban farms, community gardens, and then some of our community partners in the Food Policy Coalition who are trying to bring healthy food to residents, including Hosco, Good Life Growing, mm-hmm. St. Louis Metro Market. Uh, but we need to work with our grocery stores. And unfortunately, even some of the grocery stores that are in existence, you know, they're open for business. People have complained that the quality and the variety is subpar. Uh, MCE, our, our uh, environmental and outreach, Vista, Ali Stigler, she has been conducting listening sessions for the last year with residents in North City and North County to hear about their feelings about the food environment around them. And many have said uh, in these areas that they feel that the grocery stores are making uh, they're providing food based on assumptions about their demographic, about what food would interest them, and uh, they're not really—they're not necessarily looking for actual community feedback. We want to talk with with stores about that to try to improve. Hey, you need to listen to the residents and find out what they really want. Don't just have ten for ten pallets at the entrance of your store with honey buns. Yeah, not everybody's looking to eat sugary. Unhealthy food, or day-old bread, or you know, milk yeah. that's uh, wilted greens, that and, kind of thing, and, and, and that sort of. There's and there's there are plenty of that out there. Jerron, a question for you. You know, you talk about using urban lots. Um, how do you prepare them? I mean, you, the land has to be fertilized. It has to be willing to accept things that will grow. Often, it's just weeds. Correct, correct. So it just depends on the 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 lot in particular. Most of the lots that are here in St. Louis. About 70% is contaminated with lead because they've pretty much knocked down the buildings and just put everything in the basement and covered it up with soil. So one of the first things that you have to do is test the soil to make sure that the soil doesn't contain heavy metals or any other kind of of um, any, anything else that would actually cause harm to you uh, for, from growing plants and eating those plants. And then the second would be looking at the land, looking at how the runoff is, um, deciding if you want to do raised beds or not. A lot of, of, of the lots that may be contaminated, you can put down uh, tarps and then you can bring in new soil. I know that St. Louis Composting brings in soils. There's another number of organizations that provide soil. I think Bell Garden provides soil. You can go pick it up and then bring that soil to your location. So raised beds, um, one of the things that we're looking at doing now it w- reminds me of when I was younger. My dad... My dad had a, a tiller. We had a tiller. Mm-hmm. And we would go to individuals' backyards, and we would actually till the soil for them. And so we're looking at re- recreating that type of program where if there's a vacant lot and you have access to it and we've tested the soil and the soil is clean, then we're looking to implement as part of our 
Um, we have a Department of Labor apprenticeship program. So as part of that program, we want to actually have individuals go out and till up the soil for you and create the garden for you, especially for individuals that are maybe elderly that de- that that can't actually go out there and do the work themselves. Who's who's paying for this? I mean, you're bringing in things from the outside. To, obviously, it it costs something. It does. It does. There's so local organizations, um, Missouri Foundation of Health, the Franciscan Sisters of Mary. Um, a number of number of different organizations have helped. Um, a lot of times we put we'll put in our own our own funding for things. Um, I do consulting work on the side. I was one of the lead um, the lead consultants for the new ag exhibit at the St. Louis Science Center. And then what I personally, as a consultant, got paid, I actually put that back into the organization to help um, help us achieve our our goals and our mission. So, mm-hmm. you just one of the things that I learned is. There's a gentleman by the name of Will Allen who had an organization called Growing Power in Milwaukee, and I remember hearing him speak one time, and he was discussing about how he had over 50 different revenue streams. Mm -hmm. And so that really got me to start thinking about how do we develop multiple revenue streams that can then support the non-for-profit and then also help to support those co-ops that we incubate. You'd you'd be receptive to... uh Funding from outside sources, therefore, absolutely. Do you, do you have a website or some way people can so contact we, you? We do have a website. Our website is hoscousa.com or Hosco Farms, and it points directly back to um, all of those. Point directly to the to the website. H O S C O. H O S C O. Or you can, or if you are interested in donating, you can email me directly at. <laughs> Wait a minute! I have to go through me. <laughs> I'll take the cash. I'll okay. get it to you. No, I'll tell you. We'll, we'll put the information on our website, but go ahead, finish your sentence there. I shouldn't have. Oh, I, no, it's uh, my you know my email address directly is just my name Gibron G I B R O N at HoscoUSA dot com. Yeah. Well, another question that has to be asked, and that is, what do you do when there's snow on the ground when it's not the growing season? I mean, you've shut down. So we are working out on a way to actually heat greenhouses. Mm-hmm. Um, so we can use we can heat the soil un- in the greenhouse. We're actually we actually our organization just recently received a the rights to a technology that allows us to take waste plastic and then convert that waste plastic directly into energy, energy through a gasification process. So you're not necessarily burning the plastic; it's actually like you're vaporizing the plastic, and then it's actually producing heat. So it's almost like let's say you had a pellet stove mm-hmm. and you're using wood pellets; you would use waste plastic now to actually heat the, the soil in the greenhouse. Uh, right. We have we have to wrap it up. Our time is up, but let me give each of you a chance to wrap up in your own way. Catherine, do you have a final thought on this? I issue? would just say you know it, it, it is a mm-hmm. it's a big complicated problem and there are lots of different facets that that are 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 tricky to understand but if there's one element of that problem that you think you can contribute to in some way whether that's getting involved with MCE or getting involved with good life growing or getting involved with Gibran and Hosco you know you can you can get involved at every level whether that's donating supporting local farmers mm-hmm. or just coming out and lending a hand when it's time to get some seeds in the ground so there's a lot of ways that people can get involved um, you just have to to know where to look we'll put the relevant information on our website, sdopublicradio.org. Jeron, a final thought? I would say that <clears throat> it's important for people to to really go out, um, as Catherine was saying, and connect with the, the organizations that are out there, learn, learning what these organizations are doing and trying to get involved and learning more about the, the local food system because it affects us and it touches so many people. Everyone has to eat. So 
as long as we're working together to solve this issue, then I believe that we can achieve the goal that we want to achieve. But it's not just our organization that's going to be able to do it. It's not just MCE. It's not just Good Life Growing. It's not just um, Urban Harvest, STL. It's just everyone has to work together to solve this issue. Melissa, final thought. I would just say that I'm grateful that organizations are starting to come together in St. Louis to to address these food system issues. And um, I think that things are moving in the positive direction for the St. Louis region. I also want to add that policy is critical for sustaining a new, equitable, sustainable, healthy food system. And there are actions that can be taken right now at the state and federal level, particularly with the federal farm bill. And if anyone wants to learn more about those critical time-sensitive actions, I encourage them to go to MTE's website or email me directly. We will certainly put a link to your site as well, Melissa. Thank you. Jubran, thank you so much for being with us. Catherine, thank Thank you. you. Thank you. Keep up the good work, guys. Thank you. Thanks to Catherine Claney of Sauce Magazine, Melissa Vaderot of the Missouri Coalition for the Environment, and Jabron Jones, founder of Hosco Foods. By the way, Jabron tells me his co-op, which is free to join, by the way, is now planning a home food distribution plan for members and non-members. Archived versions of past St. Louis on the Air programs are available for download or podcast at stlpublicradio.org slash stlonair. St. Louis on the Air is a production of St. Louis Public Radio 90.7 KWMU. Thank you for listening. I'm Don Marsh.